Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Coultate and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. This week's guest on the exchange is Andy Blake. Along with Joe Hart, Andy runs World Unknown, a party that's roamed the pubs, pool halls and railway arches of South London for the past seven years. As well as being one of London's most knowledgeable DJs, Blake has a mischievous streak, which means anything he's involved with is bound to be fun. Now that applies to more than just parties. I'm sure the record nerds among you will know all about Dissident, the cult record label that Andy ran for a couple of years. There was plenty to discuss when he visited our London office recently, and we started things off by talking about some recent changes to World Unknown. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Andy Blake is up next. If you want to break its power, then pay attention to yourself. recently taken World Unknown down a gear, moving it from a monthly party to a more sporadic event. What were the reasons for this decision? We've done it nearly seven years. I think, you know, you've got to change, haven't you? Um, I mean, things like Optimo that's ran forever, it's kind of, it doesn't now, but it did. They had changes, changed venues, went, did it less less frequently. I think they probably even had time off and um, it was just time. It was perhaps ever so slightly overdue that, you know, we maybe should have done that a little bit sooner but then it's kind of, you know it's a really it's a great party it's lots of fun we enjoy it everyone else who comes to it really enjoys it so changing those kind of things is, is often quite difficult and ho- hopefully it's not you know yes it's down a gear but in as in as much as we can do different things with it you know maybe we'll we were all we've always been about 400 300 400 people maybe we can sort of do them ever so slightly not much bigger slightly bigger gives you a little bit more budget for production and stuff although obviously it's a big thing of woo is that it was it's it's about the people in the room i mean even to the extent that we hid the fucking djs away and that caused quite a quite a stir when that happened a few people were really unhappy with that because it's like it was almost like they were taking it personally like we were doing it because of them but there's a bit something a bit weird about people watching someone changing the music in the corner of the room in a small party in a big party it kind of it's a bit of sense to it, maybe. You know, there's a spectacle, there's a shock and awe thing going on. So, you know, that can have its place, can't it? So what was your response to, to people who were upset with the idea of you guys hiding away or not putting yourselves on display as DJs? Um, we listen, or well, I certainly listen. I'm pretty sure Joe and Amy did as well. It's, it's in, you know, getting the feedback's always, I mean, there's no point doing anything if you're not going to then pay attention to what the feedback is in various different ways. Um, yeah, I mean, listen to it. I, I didn't hear a good reason for us to not do it. I think a few people were concerned that there was a loss of a kind of connection. And it's like, yeah, but that's why we hump these fucking great speakers down the stairs and bring all these records with us. That's the, you know, our part of this is audio. The DJ part of it is is the audio part of it. The the other bits are down to to the participants. You know, it's not, it's not a whatever you'd call it like artist audience thing well, I mean it shouldn't be it should be we're all participating in a thing and um, and we make it together and that's the point isn't it it's like you know it's a bit of a kind of cliche to say it's true though it's, you're making something happen in and of that moment aren't you and um, watching someone changing the music is probably one of the least interesting ways I can think of spending your time at a party you know there's a lot of other things to do aren't there should be anyway even if it's just sort of tripping out and dancing you know it's but I guess maybe people feel, I mean, I don't know, you know, boiler rooms have presumably had, it will have had something to do with it, but it happened before. It's not like it's a new phenomenon. I think maybe the idea of, um, I was talking to a friend of mine about it at the weekend, actually, and he was saying, he, you know, he likes to, you know, especially when people are playing vinyl, he likes to watch people 
the DJs at work and, and just maybe pick stuff up. Like, that's cool. But bearing in mind where the DJ tends to be, that's kind of getting in the way of the dance floor usually. I was with another friend yesterday. We were talking about a party that we're, gonna th we're thinking of doing quite soon. And he half-jokingly said we could put the DJs out of the way and then put a big flat screen TV up in the bar area with you can watch the DJs from there and then it gets them out of the way and then people can't complain that they can't watch the person playing the records. Maybe we'll do that, you know. People probably think we're taking the mickey. We are a little bit, but dance floors for people to dance on. As you say, a, a big part of uh, World Unknown's reputation and allure came from the crowd, which is like a real kind of loyal, regular crowd. And for someone who hasn't been, could you describe what the crowd's like and also how did you go about sort of cultivating it? Well, we didn't. I mean, it just, it came. Joe had a, has another party called Body Hammer, which is going really strong. He's doing it with Scott Fraser now, and that's that's working brilliantly for him. And I played for that, like, must be, it was probably seven or eight years ago now, I guess. That's right. So, no, seven years ago, roughly, yeah, around the summer. And I played at that, and it was pretty good. You know, we liked it a lot, and Joe and Joe and I lived near each other, and on the in the cab on the way home, we were like, we, you know, maybe we could do something like this do a slightly different take on it because I'd played a particular kind of set there that you asked me to and um, no one else seemed to be doing it and we were like yeah we could do that and so we started it up and the crowd just kind of came but to begin with we had you know we didn't we weren't massively busy 70 80 people 100 people most times and then something about a year in maybe even earlier than that actually the beginnings of it was I think there was a bunch of older folk who had got to this point where they'd been a bit, oh, I'm a bit, you know, I've seen parties, I've done parties, it's all kind of changing, blah, 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 not as good as it used to be, all this kind of thing. And then a few of them kind of found their way there. And I hear from lots of people about, yeah, so-and-so friend of mine was at your party sending me texts going, you have to come to this next month. And it kind of, so between between one year and two years, I think that that sort of really happened. And we, and we had this, all of a sudden we had this really interesting spread of people. Lots of girls, which was really good, because it wasn't, you know, like most clubs, it was fairly male heavy at the beginning, because I guess of, at that time at least, there was, that would be the people who'd be, you know, that kind of techno guys would be interested in this sort of slightly new thing we were doing. But then all of a sudden we had all these kind of like quite cool, kind of like gothy girls coming down and, and just like staking out a claim for themselves there, just like, this is ours. And it's like, that's amazing, brilliant. And then a bunch of older, you know, people in their 40s and early 50s coming down. Quite a lot of sort of mad kids, like not many under 20, but a few. I mean, I'm hearing now from mates of mine who are like 25, 26 that they used to come. But, you know, I didn't know them then. They'd sort of sneak in a bit. And so we just ended up with this quite kind of egalitarian sort of mixture of people which I think was always what I've you know my in my experience the, the better the better parties have always had that mix they may have had been driven by a particular you know it might be a bit fashiony or a gay kind of thing or or whatever but there would always be a bit of everyone in there um, rather than this kind of silo mentality of, of everyone being kind of the same you know that sort of thing of all these different basements with a hundred people in because they've all got, they've found exactly what they want to do. And of course that, that works. That's brilliant. It's great that you've got the option, but it doesn't, it's not particularly sustainable, is it? I don't think that, you know, so having something where there was loads of different kinds of people and it's nice. People get to meet different kinds of people. The venue wasn't legal. So people were smoking indoors and stuff. So people got, got to see people sitting on, on the speaker stack, skinning up, which it's like, and I was like, Oh fuck, of course, lots of people haven't seen this. Have they? This is, this is kind of new outside of maybe slightly sketchy free party. So that was, you know, cool. And the first venue was under the railway yeah. arch in Brixton, obviously a great spot with a massive sort of reggae sound system. Do you know, it wasn't even very good, that rig, but it was it just something about it. It fitted the room brilliantly. It was in there permanently. It was a bunch of old mismatched kind of scoops and stuff. Half the bloody scoops didn't even have any fucking bins in them, drivers in them rather. And uh, But it worked the room perfectly actually most of the clout came from the two crappy speakers and sticks at the other end of the room but somehow it just made this great sound and um, how long did the did the party last there until you had to move on they got it taken off them by rail or network rail um, there was some weird shit went down in brixton there's a whole load of afro-caribbean businesses on a few railway arch runs and there was a big sort of like coordinated um network rail and police 
a bunch of like raids on a load of different places and you know bearing in mind they had parties at this place they managed to find a tiny bit of weed somewhere and there was this total kerfuffle where they got the place taken off and it must have been mental for them it was pretty bad for us because we we didn't find out till about a week before we were supposed to be doing a party there and we luckily found another venue but yeah it was hell for them really they got their place basically got their place taken off and that kind of I mean they were never the best for money but they eventually got the keys back but by then they're basically bankrupt and there's just there's no way of them getting it back so you know, the cynic in me says that that was uh, a bit of social cleansing going on because obviously these businesses have been there for years and using, they were running it like a sort of social club and um, a rehearsal rooms and stuff. And I'm, I'm fairly sure that a coffee shop going to pay Network Rail quite a lot more money. That was where the junction was and that bit of Loughborough Junction. It's fucking Tesco's. That's not cool, is it? <laughs> the junction was a great music pub. You know, Basement Jackson, people like that get started there. And now it's a Tesco's. Opposite a bloody sort of corner shop thing that's been there for years. So you can't argue that they needed a Tesco's there. It's just Tesco's wanted to be there. And so that whole corner's going to get all sort of niced up, which won't be very nice. I'm sure you've seen a, a lot of changes in and around South London down the years. Mm. Of course, I guess last year was quite an interesting one in terms of London's club scene. I saw you make some some comments when um, the Bussy building sort of came under threat what what's your your take on this on the situation at the moment do you think it's it is dire or is it just in transition oh god i mean i'd like to think it's just in transition but it might be dire mightn't it it's, it's definitely there's not you know like nightlife's never been treated with any respect by by the authorities or anyone over here um i think maybe when they end up pricing all the anyone other than super rich out of London, they might kind of change their mind about it and it might be too late then. But you look at what, you know, look at Berlin. It's completely understood that it's a legitimate, reasonable way for people to spend their time. The laws are still the laws. Everyone has to abide by them. But the business aspect of these things is treated with with a great deal of respect and party goers aren't kind of demonised for being up all night it all works doesn't it um and over here the, you compare and contrast it over here where you get you know people have to fight to get a license to allow them to have people in a building till 3 a.m and then at 3 a.m hundreds of people are spewed out into the streets they're not ready to go home and oh looks like you know public order stuff starts going on that's a surprise isn't it you know i mean like how stupid do you have to be to not think that's gonna happen i mean some boroughs are really good um the person that we speak to at Southwark, she's very much got the opinion that she'd rather it was over and done with before the tubes are finishing, which obviously is different now, potentially, or, you know, it's not that there are many tubes around our way, but, but, you know, she'd rather it was over and done with before the public transport was really filtered down to nothing, or it just goes on all night so people can leave when they want. She doesn't really like granting 3am and 4am licences. Makes a lot of sense. Keep people occupied. I mean, it seems to be quite clever stuff going on. Not my, not my kind of idea of fun necessarily, but in Shoreditch, they seem to funnel everyone to one or two venues as the night goes on. That's smart. You know, doing things like that, it really doesn't take genius to, to, to do these things better, does it? I don't think. And after you, you left the railway arch, of course, World Unknown went to a... Um sort of roved around to a few different venues. Yeah, yeah, that was that was an interesting time in exile. That was quite funny. Two of them have been knocked down since, which is quite nice. At least it means no one else can use them for parties, which is always quite a nice thing when you've done your thing there and it, it doesn't get redone. One of them got knocked down more or less immediately, didn't it? When One of them pretty much got knocked down out a few weeks after we'd done it. Yeah, we did. What did we do? So we did that Slipper Bars place in Deptford, or Bermondsey really, um, right by Millwall. Uh, that was interesting. Did a few there. I had no idea that it was under imminent threat of the people. I mean, call me naive, but the people that had it were telling me that they were part of the property development thing. And to begin with, it certainly looked like they might be. And then after a while, it's like, you're not that at all, are you? And yeah, so that one, we were there for a bit. Then we went to a place. We used a really good place for New Year's Eve about three years ago, four years ago. That should be South London's best nightclub now. But the guy who owned it's just just a numpty like a lot of them are and that never happened um and then we went to a place that was um what was it like a kind of glass but framing and, and window making place did a couple there and then just literally went there three weeks later it's like, oh, that building's not there anymore that was quite fun and then we ended up where we were for a bit 
which is really good. You know, the Dutchman, that was cool. And then really, we kind of got a bit big for there. And lots of other people start doing parties there, so, which is great for them. That's fantastic. So, But we, I think we always needed to be kind of have its own place, I think. So that's going to be interesting as we kind of do the sporadic ones you know finding places that haven't I mean you can always do a place that's been used before and just do it really differently we've done that a couple of times and that that works out quite well in terms of doing a monthly party for so long um it doesn't initially sound like that that bigger <laughs> kind of workload but I'm, I'm guessing that that month that monthly date sort of creeps up really quickly and it, it really felt like a tremendous amount of energy went into each world unknown party you didn't really do it the easy way in terms of ticketing memberships um, even sort of keeping locations sort of vaguely under wraps. What are the benefits of taking that kind of approach? I think what happens is a, a probably a higher proportion of the people that come are probably really quite into it. They're, they're intrigued by it. I mean, we definitely, like any other party, we've had plenty of times. Where we'd, we'd occasionally, I don't know, we might get a bit of coverage occasionally and you'd have certain ones, you'd be like, wow, absolutely rammed. But you'd see a lot of people who come to check it out and you'd sort of, a lot of faces you didn't recognise. And that's always, I really like that. That's a really good thing. But you definitely get this polarising thing about 2am. You'd see a load of people looking with this, like, it's almost like a look of disgust on their face. Like, that really was not what I was expecting. That was shit. I don't ever want to go there ever again. And then the other half of them are the complete polar opposite of like, fuck, I've found it. This place is wicked. And yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a sort of an interesting thing. So all of these things of, of this... I suppose literally all we were doing was we were doing it like, I mean, I kind of grew up in, you know, obviously it wasn't an internet and stuff. So it, these ways of doing things, I mean, people used to send out invites in the mail and shit. I can remember helping my friends, you know, stick 500 bloody invites in envelopes. It cost a fortune. But then their party was brilliant, probably better than anything I'm ever going to do. That kind of thing of, of doing it that way. And then I think Joe, although he's a chunk younger than Amy and I, he sort of came in to that end of it where it was a little bit sick. He used to go lost and stuff and he'd sort of, you know, he'd be traipsing around Hackney Wick. Are you sure this is where it is? Now, you know, you won't get people off, off Kingsland Road or Rye Lane a lot of the time. But when we were down at Loughborough Junction, so that's Brixton, but it's Brixton Plus a bit. You'd see that same look of these terrified groups, the gaggles of people like, is, is this it? Because you wouldn't, you know, it didn't, there's no lights or anything on it. And they'd just like, they'd run the gauntlet. It wasn't that bad, but I think people thought it was bad running the gauntlet from the, there's a sort of like a, a bit where it's just quite, it's not moody, but it would probably feel like moody if you'd never been there between the dog star and where we were. It's just, it's quiet. It's sort of like a main road, it's half main road, half residential road. There's not much going on. And uh, yeah, you'd see him occasionally. We'd literally have to go and rescue him. It's like, you come in for the party? Yeah, okay, cool. And you come. So though, I think those kind of things, they're good, they're good selectors, aren't they? Because if you're just around the corner and everyone turns, and we've done a couple in places where we have been just around the corner and you do notice quite a different crowd coming. Same as well with where, where the Dutchman is. That's a little bit of a hike. And I think something quite nice about that, I think people on their way to it, it's that game that's sort of down quiet, it's in the middle, right in the middle of a residential thing. People on their way to it, kind of get themselves in, you know, get their head in the game a little bit maybe rather than like spilling out of the cab and straight in the front door of the place that's on the main road. We've touched on the other sort of key players in World Unknown, of course, Amy, who's your wife, and Joe Hart, who's yeah. also the, who DJs with you. In terms of Joe, how has your dynamic with him changed over the last seven years? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think probably at the beginning because we were making a new thing so we were playing up you know obviously it was all of us the few hundred people who participated in it but obviously joe and i had a sort of particular responsibility which was if we don't do this there won't be a party so i think at the beginning we there was a lot of finding our feet finding a way you know finding ways to work together some of those email threads are probably quite funny actually probably make quite interesting epistolaries of just interesting things you know things we'd agree on things we wouldn't agree on the most probably quite funny arguments about things that other people are like god that detail really doesn't matter and it's like to us it did and i think that's another one of the reasons why the party worked as it did as time goes on we've kind of covered most of that stuff so i guess there would be that sort of stuff is where where the change would happen and then i think there's that thing of like okay you know so what now what should you know what should we do and i think this this having this this break i mean it's interesting because it's not very long it's not even Time's done this really weird telescoping thing where it's, it's the most 
the most insane amount of extra time has been put into my life. I'm not sure what the same what, what it's like with Joe. I think he's he because he's got a lot of body hammer. He's got body hammer on. I think pretty much monthly, and then he's also there's an interesting venue that him and his girlfriend are, are working on. So they've got quite a lot of stuff in there. So I think where I used to be the one who was running all the parties because we run world well and do other things with other friends as well, and Joe would have the regular job, and would. I mean, body hammer would occasionally happen maybe two or three times a year, but we was the constant. So now he's now got this kind of constant role of stuff and I haven't. And it's like, it's, re- it's, it's really nice. It's, it's like a lot, a lot of time and headspace has come out of it. It's really, really good. Not that it's particularly important, but in the last few weeks, I've gone away and done a bunch of away gigs as well, which I wasn't doing so much when, when we was like running full throttle. So it's not like I've just been sitting on my ass doing nothing. It's like I've somehow managed to, yeah, time's done a very strange telescoping thing. So it's kind of, so that at least is kind of proved useful. In terms of having that extra time and, and headspace, where do you plan to take World Unknown from here? I saw you post on Facebook about some like potential seaside road trips and We've stuff like that. We've been talking about this for years and I think having one every month just completely it makes that really difficult to get you know we, we've done it we've done the monthly ones and put other ones in the gaps in the middle and we've had times when we've you know we've done like three four parties in about six or six or eight weeks and sometimes absolutely rammed every single one and everyone's been brilliant and other times obviously it can it can really cut in and, and it can and for you know for us running it and I guess for people coming because if people people feel they want to come to all of them and it's you don't need to come to all of them there's other you know of course there's, there's tons of other parties on as well so that's now having these spaces we there's a potential thing in brighton we just again joe and i have between us we're both very picky and we both want quite different things a lot of the time so to find things like getting a venue that's exactly right and it's funny because you bear in mind some of the shitholes we've used, it doesn't necessarily look like like we're particularly fussy, but it's like, no, that's exactly the right kind of shithole. Anyway, so we're talking about Brighton. There's some, I mean, maybe some of this sort of this North Kent kind of thing. There's some interesting spots coming up there. I've got mates who've got a sort of a pub venue that seems to be isolated enough that we could do whatever we wanted in it. That, that may or may not happen at some point. There's... um. Joe had a couple of very good ideas, actually. They're a tiny bit further away from London than we'd like, and they're not near another big city. I think we could, for example, we could do something, say, near Bristol and not take tons of people from London and get a few from towns like Bristol to go. But going out completely into the unknown, ironically, is going to be a little bit sort of more tricky. So we're going to have to do that step at a time. But yeah, that kind of thing going, going away, I think, will be lots of fun. I don't know, a few, a few a year in London, a few a year outside London, I think would be nice. You know, if there, if opportunities present themselves to do stuff, I mean, we get offered sort of, I'll come and DJ or, you know, particularly festival things. And it's, we're not a DJ team. It's like, I think for us to do those kind of things, it would have to have an element of someone being brave or stupid enough to say, there's an, there's an area. Can you do that area for X hours or whatever? But that's not really how, you know, the vast majority of these kind of things don't work like that because they're trying to fit an awful lot of people in. So they want these bite-sized kind of um, nugget kind of things. So, yeah, you know, stuff's going to... I think think some interesting offers are beginning to get made and I'm sure more will come in. And in terms of Andy Blake, the solo DJ, I mean, I've always seen you as, like, synonymous with with London and the London sort of uh, venue circuit and... Of course, with uh, with the world unknown, like does the idea of like playing gigs in Europe or being like a travelling DJ does that appeal to you at this it point? It does. I mean, I've done it over the years on and off. I mean, four countries in a weekend isn't quite as much fun as it might sound. I've done that a few times and realised that's really not that's probably not for me. But yeah, I mean, I did. I did like the thing the week after the the first week after we stopped woo we or not stopped you know, slowed it down stopped the monthly ones. I went to Milan and a week after went to Glasgow, which I used to go to Glasgow quite a lot and hadn't been for a while. Both of those were loads of fun. And I just got offered a New York thing, which was just going to be a little bit too soon. It was going to be next weekend and it was just like, just there's too much, too much other stuff I've got to get done in London. So hopefully that will happen later in the year. And yeah, there's, I mean, there's obviously, there are tons and tons of really interesting parties. I mean, I've got a couple of my mates, I've been looking, you know, checking their Facebook feeds and stuff, doing like really interesting gigs in, um, in sort of Southeast Asia and stuff. And it's like, some really, you know, there's some really interesting, cool, fun shit happening. Um, and I think there's, 
yeah, so there's there's there's, there's a you know there's quite a lot of the world that I haven't seen yet. So yeah, I think I think getting out, doing a bit more of that, and maybe doing it in a kind of way that becomes in in some sense fairly sustainable. You know, if you start off with a with a gig, straight DJ gig, few hours, whatever kind of thing, and then you meet the you know meet the right people, and then perhaps you can build stuff. You know, because there's stuff I can benefit from stuff they know, they can benefit from stuff I know, and potentially some very interesting things can happen. You know, I mean, obviously that that's that's the same for pretty much every. Every person who gets to travel around, I mean, it's, quite, you know, it's quite a privilege, isn't it, getting to travel around the planet and, uh, and meet lots of different kinds of people and, and see lots of different places and be put into lots of different scenarios. Most people don't ever get to do it. And um, it's, um, I think it, you, know, you, can, you can do some very interesting things with it, can't you? Yeah, and, and without the, str- the restraints of a monthly party to organise, it sounds like you've got sort of other fingers in, in various pies in terms of maybe starting record labels. Is that the case? Yes, there's going to be a bunch of stuff some of my own and I'm again going to use the fact that I've done this stuff for quite some time to help other people get their things going and sort of hopefully you know help provide a a sort of a an environment that can help nurture those kind of things for people and that's all going to start very soon I mean it should it, it was on target it should have already kicked off now we've got the first few releases already ready to take them and get them cut but I suppose in the meanwhile it's turned out that we've got access to a much quicker pressing plant because I mean that was like looking at 16 weeks for a lot of the last few years and it's kind of got down to 10 and now there's a couple of new plants come online so that's that's come down to five for us which is back a little bit at the sort of pace I'm used to working at so starting late doesn't mean the records are actually going to come late I think we're just going to say that so yeah so that that's all pretty interesting so is that going to be a record label that you run or is it going to be a collaborative thing there'll be a lot of collaboration in it I think having you know when I did Dissident that was I mean obviously I was collaborating with lots of people the artists the distributors the manufacturers all these kind of things um, and of course the shops that were selling it and you know you're coll- it's a collaborative process all the way through isn't it but when it came to sort of organising everything, that was pretty much myself. This time round, I think we're going to we're basically building a bit more of an organisation. Not really in so much that it's got any size to it necessarily, but that it's organised. That there's there will be a few of us doing it. There'll be like a manufacturing and distribution bit of it, which is going to be called Twelve Inch People, which will because I mean the whole point of this is just putting it's club. Not, I mean, it's putting out music for DJs to play in clubs. That's the idea behind it. I'm grateful to anyone who wants to buy the records. That's fantastic. But I'd like for a lot of them to be getting some, you know, getting some airtime. I mean, when I had Dissident, you know, one of the reasons of doing so few copies of those records was that, yeah, there's a couple of hundred copies of the records. But, the, you know, the naive and, and, and idealistic idea is that each of those records goes to someone who can then share them and disseminate that music to... A group of people, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. That's the idea. A lot of the time, these things end up on a shelf. That's fine, but they're better off getting out and about. So everything about this is to is it's records that go in record bags and records that get played in you know records that get worn out and shit like that and that kind of thing. So that's going to be the sort of the parent thing. And then I'm going to resurrect. There's a label guy I had called In Plain Sight, which I did after Dissident finished. And we did three releases and didn't quite land it. And I think it would be, it's, you know, listening back to those, they're really good. And I think that, I mean, in the broadest sense, that was a house thing. So to funnel all the house stuff through there makes a lot of sense. Then there's a friend of ours, Johnny Davis, does a thing called Analog Electronic, which is some of the best pieces of like, club music I've heard for years. Really, really interesting simple not actually kind of simple in some ways but they've got layers and and stuff going on that means i'm relatively sure that they're quite crossovery kind of records that people playing in little rooms for 80 people and people playing in clubs that have a couple of thousand in them can all get something out of them so we'll see i mean that i'm particularly excited about sort of nurturing that and then then there's going to be just a bunch of other stuff. There's a bunch of conversations being had. You know, a few friends of ours. I think there's going to be a whole like phase. Two, there'll be a phase two thing kind of after the summer, and probably at that point start looking at things like maybe not formally managing people, but kind of helping out with those parts of the you know the the system, Help, helping people kind of work things and schedule things well, and 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 maybe not you know 
us older folk have made a few mistakes over the years so you can help someone else not make those mistakes that's mistakes those that's quite useful isn't it it sounds like it might be a bit of a sort of ecosystem i guess in terms of like having that like as you mentioned like a parent kind of label but maybe some others sprouting out from it is that it right it seems like it there's it seems like there's a sort of an element of sustainability about it i mean there's 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 conversations which i kind of something i've promised myself i'd never do which is there are conversations about having a pressing plant in a year or so and rather worryingly we appear to have access to the money to do it and that's like i went to see a friend of mine who i used to have a pressing plant and he, every time this would come up, was always, don't get one, it's a nightmare. And I went to see him for my my sort of, I don't know, yearly lecture. And he laughed. He went, well, I nearly opened one up myself last year, so I'm no longer the person to put you off doing this. And there's these new, there's a couple of manufacturers. There's a Canadian manufacturer whose name I keep forgetting. And there's a German one called New Built. And they're making new presses, supposedly degrees more efficient than the old ones. I've yet to sort of see them in action myself and, and do any of the, the really sort of hardcore number crunching. But yeah, Johnny, who does analog electronic, he's got one of these um, vinyl dub cutting lays and he's taught himself to do that pretty quickly. And he had a five year plan for doing a plant. And I think we've just pulled that forward to, a I don't know, we might have it together next year. So we've got like 18 months or so to, to do that. But um, that's going to be interesting when we've got that then we do have, like you say, this kind of ecosystem thing where it's like we've got the means of production then. Then things could get very interesting because if we want 30 copies of something, it doesn't matter that it's going to cost us a fortune because it's, it's, it's us that it's, you know, it's we can go and do it. We just do whatever we want. That's going to be, that'll be quite liberating, I think. So, uh, yeah, say you sort of got control of a pressing plant yeah. by 2017. What would be the, what's best case scenario? What would that what would that look like in terms of how everything would run? Well, I mean, it won't be particularly big, I don't think. I think one of the, it seems that a lot of these newer machines, you don't need the scale that you used to need in the bigger plants. There's some, some stuff that I don't fully, you know, I don't fully comprehend it, but there's stuff about, you need boilers and shit like that. And, and I think you used to have, you used to have a kind of, used to have to have, have to have the economy of scale with the bigger with more machines now i think you can do it on less machines this seems to be what everyone's saying so if we had four presses and i guess we'll we'll press all our own stuff and we'll take on other people who we you know friends of ours who we've enjoyed working with over the years um we'll definitely keep it to independence because one of the really annoying the, these 16 week lead times that cropped up were because a bunch of us were using these plants when the majors had like consigned vinyl to the dustbin and then they come back off I suppose off the back of things like record store day and they they want back in and they bully their way to the front of the queue and I mean it's understandable money talks they're wanting a few thousand copies of a thing you know reissue quite often and that's a lot easier than doing you know doing 6,000 copies of something's a hell of a lot easier than doing 20 300 run 12s you know they they got to the front of the queue and us lot all got put put to the back which is a bit irritating but you know it's how it goes isn't it and i'm interested in sort of comparing this new label venture with dissident um specifically i mean how do you plan to strike a balance of say creative and artistic credibility and actually being able to maybe live a semi-comfortable life off the back of running this label well i don't i mean you know there'll be some money that can come out of the labels but really, I mean, I can, I can live on the DJ stuff. That 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 works okay. So there, you know, there won't we won't be putting out any EDM records. Not that I don't imagine EDM people have records, do they? But well, I've, even in terms of pressing up more than a couple hundred. Well, copies. I think. Well, I've seen. I mean, there there are people now. You know, there's people putting out like just straight up decent, you know, good club stuff. Who every once in a while sell two or three thousand copies. It, it's been a long time coming. I think a lot of there's been a chunk of time when people really sort of hunkered down in this kind of psychological ghetto of selling 300 copies. And that's difficult because you're guaranteed you're losing money or you might just break even on three. You know, the re dissident works on 200 because it was one sided stuff. I mean, there's so much money goes into the startup of a, of a vinyl release and it's per side. So if you're doing two-sided records and you're spending money on sleeves and you're doing all this kind of stuff and if you've got, you know, God forbid, spend a bit of money on promotion, you're losing money, guaranteed. But we've worked, I've, we've got a system, I'm fairly sure we're, we're going to 
be doing 500s and upwards. And it just becomes, the minute you get to 500, the numbers become completely different. And, you know, I mean, 300 and 500, there's not a marked difference in scale there. But financially, it becomes completely different. It becomes sustainable. It means you can have a small group of people, you know, a staff or whatever, getting paid to do, you know, getting paid to do work rather than being expected to do it for love and not much else. So I think that'll be good. So I think if we're, we're there, I, I'm looking at most releases at doing five to 800. I think that that's, that's kind of what we'll be, that's what we're sort of setting the model on. And sometimes maybe we'll get really lucky. Sometimes, some, you know, someone will pick up on something and it'll, it'll get away a bit or it might just keep going for a while. You know, I think the interesting thing now is there's so much stuff coming out. It's almost impossible to have these big blow up records that everyone loves for six months and then everyone hates because they're so ubiquitous. That doesn't really seem to happen so much now, which I think that that's really healthy. That's excellent. I still play a lot of records now when I DJ that are records that I've, I've been playing them for 20 years plus and I sort of rotate them so I don't get sick of them. And they're not big hits, most of them. So they're hopefully not records that everyone else is a bit sick of. And I think the idea of having a thing where that kind of sustainability is quite interesting. Well, you know, it's very, it interests me greatly that, that that's how you can, you know, like a great record, if it doesn't get rinsed to death, doesn't kind of grate on you, does it? And um, how could a thing get rinsed to death now when you think, I mean, do you think about how much music there is coming out? I mean, even just vinyl alone, it's... It's terrifying. It's impossible to keep up with, and I, I don't know what I mean. It's vinyl one percent of what's coming out on digital. It's a huge amount of music, isn't it? So, there's an awful lot to choose from. So, one would assume that people drift less to all playing the same record. I wanted to sort of dive into the world of Dissident for for a minute. I mean, it's a label that only ran for two or three years, but it had such a, a huge impact and seemed to influence a whole lot of people. Why did you decide to start that label in the first place? I had some music that some friends had given me. It's usually a good way to start a record label. And that was, yeah, you actually, I couldn't think what for a second. But yeah, I had Ben, who makes the Gatto Frito records, is a friend, Jamie, who did the Cajun Avery records. Milo, who did um, many things. You know, Crouton. His, and, Crouton, his Bintus yeah. is one of his big ones yeah. now. And um, the uh, Binary Chaffinch. And the Binary Chaffinch thing was this rumour. This, oh, Milo's 12-minute disco record. No one had actually heard it. And I was like, can I have a listen to this record that no one's actually heard? Turns out loads of people had like knocked it back. And I was like, well, you know, this strikes me as something close to a work of genius. Should we put it out and see if other people think so? Um, so that was that. And there was there was a half an idea to do this. This didn't main... I mean, it was kind of a bit like it was supposed to fold out how this idea is going to. But then I kind of got really into the idea of just putting out... Like doing like the promo runs almost putting these records out and putting out a couple of hundred copies and moving on regardless of what the demand was. It's like, well, no, those ones are out now. Here's another thing by someone else that's equally brilliant. And that was pretty useful. I got quite a few people started. I mean, like Hard Ton came through that and um, Disco Dromo stuck a record out with us. They'd had plenty of stuff out before. Ali Reno, he'd had loads of stuff out before, but it seemed the stuff he put out with us. And maybe because it was just simple, like one track on a side of a 12-inch. Because you it's significantly louder than when you're squeezing two and three tracks on. They sound big. I mean, master them sound really big, and and um, I think that really helps. And and obviously, sort of really stark black and white artwork. It just sort of caught caught a moment, didn't it? I think there was, you know, it's one of those things. It just it was of it was of its time. I mean, so many of those artists and projects that you've you've just sort of reeled off. I mean, the first time I heard of them was through Dissident. Is that going to be the plan for your n- new label to kind of? have these kind of necessarily under the radar kind of artists? I, I think it's um, sort of yes and no. I mean, I don't know that there was necessarily any, it wasn't on purpose that it was, because I, I don't really pay a great deal of attention to where someone or something might be considered to be in the scheme of things. And I mean, based on what we were just talking about, now it's almost impossible to know someone, you know, there, there are so many different ways in which you can measure someone's relative, you know, the level of awareness that people have of them and, and that, you know, what's, what God knows what success actually means. Freedom is probably all it means, isn't it? But so now I think, cause you have all these bubbles, someone can be like seeming, seemingly massive in a bubble and then out you step like a few feet outside the bubble and no one's ever heard of them. So I think it will just be a case of, I hope it's always that track's brilliant. You know, that, that with dissident, cause it was the one sided thing, nearly always it was like one track now we're going to be 
sort of maybe, you know, not concentrating on it as a package necessarily, but there'll be, a you know, two or three tracks on a 12-inch and you just kind of get a release together and hopefully it's always, that's brilliant. It doesn't really matter if they're famous or they're not famous. That's brilliant. And, or we think that's brilliant and we're going to get that out and, and do stuff with it. And hopefully it gets picked up. We're going to, I think this time with Dissident, deliberately there was, there was never any any promotion, which of course in itself becomes a form of promotion, doesn't it? You sort of create a void. And that wasn't lost on me. I mean, it was it was a bit inadvertent and accidental to begin with, but I suppose that was, I mean, that was the heyday of forums and stuff. So people were running around showing people stuff they'd found out about. So if you had a thing that you couldn't pick up information about somewhere else, then someone's quite likely to do that for you. We're now sort of really saturated, so... I don't suppose that would work. So I'm actually really looking forward to doing some very, just some really quite subtle kind of promo, like a a refined version of the '90s thing. Where I think there's a really a friend of mine was he was young younger and he was saying, "Oh, I have this sort of like this romanticised idea of of the '90s where there are these sort of test pressings and dub plates going out to X, Y, and Z big DJs and they get it for six months." And I was like, "Yeah, that." quite often was fairly romanticised because the truth of the matter is that there was there's an intern sticking 500 copies of some chod white label in, in envelopes to send them out to everyone in the hope that someone charts it somewhere. So hopefully what we can do is a version of that refined idealised thing not necessarily, they won't be going to anything anything approaching superstar DJs they'll be going to interesting people who we know will take 50 or 60 white label copies, test pressings and do something with them, get them to people. And I think that I think that will be really interesting, very organic way of doing it. And I doubt that it will create hits out of nothing, but it's not designed to. It's it's just it's just designed just to seed interest. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. I think that'll be it's something I've never really enjoyed doing because of all these aspects of it that have been a bit I don't know, a bit gash. And um to do it in a way that's actually fun. I think you know. I think we, you know we'll have we'll have a lot of fun doing it. We're not we're not trying to get reviews in magazines. It's we just want to get it out, get the records out and about, and get people playing them, and then see what happens with them. In uh, addition to Dissident, that you've had some other label ventures uh, in plain sight, which you which you mentioned, um, Cave Paintings, and of course a, a world unknown label. What kind of lessons are you going to take from those into the new venture? I mean, hopefully loads of stuff that I can't think of at the moment because it would be nice to think that I've learned from my mistakes. Um, I think taking it more steadily than what happened with... I mean, that was a load of fun. That was a proper roller coaster with Dissident because it wasn't meant to be that manic, but people kept sending me stuff. must be exactly what they get with Lies because that that's, follows a fairly similar sort of trajectory in terms of like the incessant release schedule, just like it's just pounding them out. And of course, they kept it going. I'm guessing... I guess there must be a team of them because if that was one person, he'd be dead by now, wouldn't he? But, you know, there's there's a group of people making that work. It's fantastic. It's great. It seems to work brilliantly for them, and it works fantastically for the artists that they're working with. But I would like to work at a slightly slower pace than I've done in the past. And I think the way the way that that's going to manifest is that I will there will be a number of labels, so no one label's going to be doing tonnes and tonnes of releases. But when you start adding it all up, it'll be somewhere between like a label level of workload and a distribution level of workload. So probably actually we might end up doing a similar sort of amount of work to what someone like Lies does, but it will be spread over a few different labels. It's not all going to be my stuff. It will be, I'm kind of much more interested in other people's stuff than my own, to be honest, you know, because I sort of know by the time I've done my thing, I sort of knew what it was already, didn't I? Because I've, it's my idea. I'd much rather find out what you're up to or what someone else is up to and, and, and work with that. And that seems to, you know, it kind of, it, it, that's probably why I DJ rather than I'm in a band, something like that, because I get to kind of take stuff from lots of different places and put it together in a different kind of way. Well, in terms of you um, as a DJ, you have, you know, produced and made, and made plenty of records, but people really do know you as a DJ. Um, going sort of way back, when and where did you learn how to play records i mean it's the cliche but that 88 thing boom, changed everything for a, a ton of us i prior to that just about allowed myself to think that maybe i could write about music for i mean back then there weren't even many places to write you know it's like you're looking at 
wow, how do I get to write in the NME? Or, or um, I mean, you had like what became DJ Magazine was part of the record mirror, like a fold-out bit in the middle. And then it was called Jocks for a bit. It was kind of weird. Um, they had a standalone magazine and then Jocks became DJ and became the the fortnightly thing. It was monthly again now, isn't it? So it shows how much I paid attention I paid to anything. So up until then, I just about allowed myself to think of that. And then the 88 thing happened and it was like, you know, I really do enjoy kind of doing and making tapes and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it wouldn't be the greatest leap to think that I could do this in a room full of people. So that, like many, many other people, you know, it's a total cliche, isn't it? It's like like every other kid in South London, it seems, went and got some decks and, and had a bunch of records already and went and started, went, went sort of buying different kinds of records. And gradually learning the te technical aspects of it. I mean, it's a few years before I kind of did anything. We, Me and some mates put some parties on in the late 80s and the early 90s. Nothing, neither here nor there, really. It was a while before I kind of found my feet with it, I think. And then some, sometime from the sort of middle 90s onwards, started feeling reasonably comfortable with it and getting somewhere with it. And then about 2000, just kind of, I'd sort of almost had, had enough by then. And I sort of stopped... But then the minute after I stopped, I knew I didn't want to stop. And I went and started playing in small places. And um, kind of instead of playing like the functional club music was playing, I mean, it's still club music, but older stuff mainly. And sort of rekindled my, my real interest. And you know, I kind of found again that level, that reason I'd got into it. And then sort of drifted to this sort of middle middle of the sort of two, you know, early 2000s. And, um, and then all this stuff kind of started happening with with dissident and things like that you know i started getting the you know the, the weird thing of you get the dj bookings because you put some records out i still fail to understand what putting records out has got to do with djing but you know if it opens doors it opens doors you know i should i probably spent a little bit too long questioning it and a little bit not enough time saying oh thank you that's great let's get on with this you know your sets are peppered with acid disco ebm house techno loads of other stuff what kind of experiences or djs have informed your your own tastes i suppose the first so pre-acid house not very much i don't think i didn't i never got the chance to hear really good djs in really good environments pre that then when acid, i mean it's more the sort of the original bit of this balearic idea which of course has been sort of turned into a million different there's a, so many different definitions of that term now it's, it's sort of pointless using it really but the kind of thing that the boys own lots so that's people like Weatherall and Terry Farley and Phil Perry and all these other, I mean like the DOP which is um, Kevin Swain and Kevin Hurry Justin Robertson all of these kind of older the guys who you know so I'm like 18, 19 they're like middle 20s and early 30s and probably yeah, middle twenties. They're the, so they're the guys DJing at the parties that we went to, and that was you wouldn't necessarily be particularly checking out what Andrew was doing. But if you live in London and you go out on Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday, you're probably going to hear him DJ. So that would would happen. And obviously, he had. A, I think certainly by the time you get into ninety ninety one. He's really developing a very interesting sound for himself, and there's there's some, and Phil Perry was a, I mean, he's another one I always talk about when people ask who's who's influenced me. Phil was like this kind of this similar sort of thing to what Andrew was doing, but with more of a black music kind of root to it. So there's a load of my sort of big records I still play today. They're Phil's records. They're like I heard him play them at Full Circle or whatever. It's like right, I need to find out what these are. And these are records that, this is, this is 25 years ago now, and they still, I play them, people fucking lose their minds to them, and they're the ones that people are asking me, you know, what's this, where's this come from, what the hell, you know. And they're not big records, and they've not been comped, and they've not been, you know, they're, they're not played by Zip and people, so they're not 80 quid and all this kind of thing. So that's kind of quite a lot, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. Then, I suppose I used to go to trade very early on and I didn't realise how much it had influenced me musically because kind of quite a lot of the music, certainly as it had gone on for a few years, a little bit manic for me. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the experience. Really interesting, brilliant nightclub. Probably the, in a lot of senses, probably the best nightclub London's ever had. Maybe one of the best clubs I've ever been to. But we went to the trade 25th anniversary thing uh, and I don't go to those things because it was the last one. It was like, yeah, let's go. And we went and it was an egg and that was, I mean, that was a genius night out. And it kind of dawned on me how much that's a part of my musical DNA. And then like, I don't know, checking out like weird sort of squat parties in South London. 
that's sort of the beginning of that kind of acid techno thing. That was never a massive kind of sound for me. But some of the grungier, weirder shit, of, I think it's always been this stuff, this weirder stuff around the edge of a main kind of thrust or something, which I think is probably quite a lot of people who've got any longevity in the DJ thing. I think that's that's them, isn't it? Because if you do a thing that's totally there and then, then that's going to kind of wear thin relatively quickly. And then friends of ours ran Wiggle, which is, I mean, that's one of the best, you know, in terms of parties more than clubs. And I don't know what the difference is particularly, but this kind of communal gathering. I mean, for every month, pretty much for a very long time, five, six, seven hundred people, massive sound system, playing Tech House before Tech House was a dirty word when their musical selection was genius. You know, really, really good. You've got Nathan Coles and Terry as the residents and, and Eddie. The guests were nearly always friends. Sometimes there'd be some, I remember Richie Horton did one because he really, really, really wanted to do it. He was over here playing techno gigs and he played at one for them. But m all, most of the time it's people like Dave Mothersole and people like that. And it's very difficult to mention Tech House now because people just snigger at you. But the good shit's brilliant. I mean, it, it, it's some kind of epitome of like what a good night out should be because it's not, it's not a formula. The, the formula is it's about 122 to 128 BPM. That's the formula. And it's going to be four on the floor. It's not like that you get occasional breakbeat kind of tracks played in it. So there's no formula. So it starts off nice and it gets a bit menacing and then it gets nice again. And, then, and it just, it, it moves around. And it was, and I think it was like many of these genre kind of titles before some people actually start going in the studio to make that kind of music, you get these brilliant periods. So there's this kind of interesting sort of tour through all these, like, very, it's a very London thing. Not so much things like Speed Garage, although in retrospect, there's. Uh, I used to go to those parties, friends of mine used to run them. I never really got what the fuss was about, but certain records that I've end, you know, just ended up with, and again, that wouldn't be part of the main thrust of it with the sped up vocals, they work for me still. So were you quite heavily involved with the London tech house scene in its heyday? Certainly more as someone on a dance floor, not as one of the key DJs or anything like that. I had a record label called Abnormal Recordings, which... Start, well, Amy and I had a record label called Abnormal Recordings, which we started in 98 and ran that. Didn't run that for very long because that was a that was my first experience of running my own record label. And um, I found it a little bit disappointing that in order to keep the sales up, the releases had to be quite similar to each other. This is a, a, the heyday of people. Just everyone had four labels to put out because they basically keep putting out versions of the same track on each label. And, you know, you'd sell a couple of thousand records if you did it that way. But, you know, I'd go to the parties and would be friends of the people that ran them. And it was it was a very interesting time. I think there was, I mean, I, I can't even think what would have, I suppose things like Speed Garage would have been a big deal, wouldn't it? UK Garage would have been a main thrust. And then these parties, you know, Wiggle and things like, and Whoop Whoop and all these kind of things. There was there's this amazing venue, I presume it must have been torn down by now, in a, it was an old pub at North Woolwich. And it's just the middle of nowhere. And you just have these parties that go on and on and on, and just wicked, wicked parties. But they would be, there would be, it wasn't the free party, the sloppiness of the free party thing, which not always sloppy, those things, but often they are. There was a really good mix of people. And I suppose in many ways, in terms of the parties that we organise, I've always got those in the back of my mind of we need to be getting somewhere near as good as those. I still don't think we've made it. Those things were pretty special and pretty idyllic. And it was kind of interesting that it got a little bit ignored. I mean, quite famously, well, not necessarily that famous, but the um, the London House Tree thing that the Faith guys did, the whole Tech House thing was completely left off the original version of it. And there was quite a lot of chat on forums about that, you know, how they didn't really dig it. They weren't really into it, although they were into lots of the same records, but it just wasn't packaged in the same way. And then when they did the revision of it, it, it Wiggle and I think Peg, which is Jane Fitz's thing, and a few of the others got, got included. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's this thing that the, 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 the original Real Deal version of it has never really got the credit it deserves, I don't think. And I think a lot of very, I think a lot of people have come through that and it's, just lots of stuff that was should be really important, like really good sound systems and all this kind of stuff and, and having separate bar areas to dance floors and, and dance floors being places to dance on. This kind of stuff that can get a little bit lost in the, in the sort of the modern incarnation. It was paramount, as it should be. And how much of a priority is, is digging for records and, and finding new slash old records for your sets these days? Um... Got an awful lot of records already. It's kind of I reached a point where it I 
should probably start clearing some out and making space for new ones. But I've been enjoying quite a lot of having an awful lot of fun, almost like digging through my own stuff. That's been interesting, kind of repurposing stuff that I've, you know, stuff I might have played before, stuff I might have never really got that into, you know, things that may be playing different tracks off EPs and shit like that. Because, of course, you know, to a certain extent, the stuff that sort of really does it does all kind of, you know, it does all kind of sound kind of similar. The stuff that really does kind of keep it going has, has that kind of essence. 10-year-old record, 20-year-old record, 30-year-old record, brand new record, not necessarily a huge amount of differences. And I think once you're kind of in, you've got it in the room and it's on the sound system, I really enjoy playing stuff completely out of context, completely out of time and creating new context with it. I think that for me is a big part. I've you know, taken a bunch of brand new shit and a bunch of stuff from all different periods. I mean, if I'm if it's sort of house and techno stuff, then you've even that you've got thirty years of that really. You can do really interesting stuff with it. You know, all the best DJs, you've got no idea whether it's like been beamed down from Mars, is brand new, is ten years old, twenty years old, which part of the planet it's from. When they get in it, when they've nailed it, it's completely otherworldly, isn't it? It's this transcendence, temporary transcendence takes place, and something really interesting happens. And I think that's been me for a, quite a long time. Searching out new stuff that other people aren't playing is a lot of fun. I'm probably more likely to find more of that stuff actually in in mine and my mates' record collections because this idea, you know, the digger things become it's quite a badge now for people, isn't it? It's everyone kind of does it. There's a ton of reissuing, which is really useful, really good, and it's evened up the playing field massively. And I think you know that's that's interesting because it means that we're going to get to something new from it, but. I don't know how interested I am in travelling around Europe trying to find the last undiscovered disco record anymore. You know, it, it, I'm sure there are some, but I'm probably, I'm playing less of that kind of stuff. I guess I'm doing more more club gigs where that kind of churning, relentless thing is, is I really enjoy it still. You know, I think, I suppose it's quite fashionable, isn't it, to pretend that you might have grown out of it. I haven't, I really dig it. It's, I, it's really primal. I mean, it's not even a 40-year-old, 50-year-old thing going back to Mancuso at his loft parties. It's it's thousands of years old. It's, you know, light and smoke and loud drums and heavy bass and weird discordant noises. That's been going on since Dionysian rites and no doubt long before then. It's, it's a, you know, it's a big part of a, of a trans, transcendental experience, isn't it? So, you know, we're kind of... So, no, I don't go and buy, I, I don't dig that much these days is the short answer to that. But what you were saying about sort of playing a set and taking your cues from like music from, you know, a period of four or five decades and, and kind of playing stuff out of context or giving something new context by kind of mixing it into a certain track or whatever, that does feel like that really gets to the heart of what you'd hear across a night at World Unknown. Yes, I think that that broadly is, is what it was always about, wasn't it? I think there was uh, there was often an idea that it was this sort of EBM thing, but really sort of big pounding, like, you know, sort of like Wild Pitch Records, they were it's probably more, you know, more that than, than anything. Just this sort of grinding, churning, just relentless. This is really, there's a really interesting element of the relentless thing that falls somewhere between techno and house, see where this is going again, that is just... You can just hit a really sublime note with that, I think. Um, I think many, many, you know, many DJs have managed to do it over the years and it's it's still the bit, you know, my my experience of it when, when, when a club's really happening, when something really nuts has just gone on, it's at that point. And there's this brilliant thing, isn't there? This music that's kind of, it's functional, but it's, some, it's more than just functional, but it's been made for that function. <laughs> 